Pacific leaders come to Australia to insist we stop contradicting ourselves on climate. Let's listen first to those Pacific leaders. They've been in Canberra today. Former Kiribati president, Anote Tong, was one of the two Pacific elder voices coming to Australia, as we say, to tell our government to just stop contradicting itself on climate change. Australia cannot... um absolve itself of that the responsibility because it's selling it's not giving it away it's selling and benefiting by it and uh, that the, the export of coal uh, especially and of course gas uh, to a lesser extent will drive continue to drive emission levels up wherever they are burnt Let's go to our regular guest on All Matters Pacific, Tess Newton-Kane. Tess is the project leader at the Pacific Hub at Griffith University in Queensland. Welcome back Tess Thank you very much, Ellen. It's lovely to be with you. So Anote Tong, uh, former uh, Kiribati president, former president of Palau, Tommy Regmaganso Jr. Now, Tess, this is not like Malcolm Turnbull and Kevin Rudd turning up, you know, and there's, a, there's an arched eyebrow. These are uh, former presidents who are still very influential in the Pacific. Absolutely. I mean, when they were in office as presidents of their countries, they strode the global stage at uh, international climate change negotiations. They were very strong voices um, in this long-standing um, position of the Pacific on what they wanted to see in relation to climate change. They're no longer leaders of their countries, but they are part of this grouping called the Pacific Elders Voice, which is Um, emerged over the last year or so and I think encapsulates a couple of things. One is they bring an awful lot of technical capacity. They've been in international negotiations, they've led governments and all of that sort of thing. But also if you think about it in the terms of Pacific culture, they bring with them the mana and the wisdom of the elders. In Pacific cultures, elder people, elders are, are seen as having really strong voices, really strong positions within the community and within the overall discourse because of their their wisdom and their lived experience. So that's what we're hearing from uh, this week in Canberra is these elders have come from the region to Australia to speak with this member of the Pacific family as nominated self-nominated by Australia, and they've had some fairly trenchant things to say. And it's a new era in Canberra, obviously with a new government, and some ground to make up. I mean, there was the infamous 2019 Pacific Islands Forum in Tuvalu, where Scott Morrison goes along and says, look, we're we're not going to mention no more coal and gas. We're not going to mention keeping global warming to 1.5 degrees, which was the chant from the Pacific, 1.5 to stay alive, and they meant that literally. And we're not going to say anything uh, at that stage, Australia, about uh, net zero by 2050. And it was said that there were prime ministers at that event crying as a result of that, not to mention the offence given, uh, you know, with jokes uh, from Mr Dutton about, you know, lapping waters in the Pacific and the rest of it. So this is an assertive new uh, Pacific diplomacy we're seeing, how is it being received in Canberra? Look, I I think based on what we've seen so far from Prime Minister Albanese and Foreign Minister Minister Wong, I think they were kind of prepared for this. I think they, they were very quick off the mark, very quick out of the gate to say our position is different. 
We have this 43% um, uh, uh, commitment in terms of emissions. They subsequently said that they saw it as a floor, not a ceiling. What was particularly significant was in relation to the Pacific was that they said, we won't get in the way anymore. We won't be telling you to stop saying this or take these words out. We realise that that's not, that's not the appropriate way. We Even if we can't necessarily uh, commit to those things, we're not going to stop you from advocating for what is so important. And I think that's been recognised by the Pacific and it's been welcomed. But obviously what we've seen this week from these leaders and what we've heard elsewhere, including at the Pacific Islands Forum, is that from the Pacific's point of view, this is a good start, mm. but this isn't this isn't the, this isn't the end of the conversation. This is just the start of the conversation, and they want to see more, and they want to see it sooner rather than later. And and Anoto Tong made it pretty clear, didn't he? He said, "Look, this is not a this is climate change isn't something that's going to happen. It is happening on the weekend. There was a big high tide, and Anoto Tong, the former uh, uh, Kiribati president who was in Canberra today, all the family are rushing around with sand." And gravel, bringing it back yeah. to the house to reinforce a seawall, right? And so there he is in Canberra saying, no new coal and gas, standing alongside Senator Pocock and saying, this doesn't seem to be negotiable from the Pacific's point of view. Well, that's right, because as, as they've said, you know, the, the emissions, every, every bit of coal or gas that's dug out of the ground and burnt is contributing to the emissions that are driving these tides, these king tides that Anote Tong's family are dealing with and countless other families in his country and other countries such as Marshall Islands and Tuvalu. This isn't something that they're contemplating in the future. This is what they're dealing with every day. And if they're not dealing with it today, they know they're going to be dealing with it in the very near future. But you see, Australia um, can open new coal and gas mines, sell all that overseas. And as Anoto Tong was saying, it doesn't add to our carbon bill, if you like. We can still do emissions reduction and none of that counts because we don't burn it. And he's saying, poo to that. Well, that's right, because if in terms of, you know, if you're the one sort of trying to reinforce a seawall or put sandbags against the king tides, you know, whether it was burnt in Australia or China or Vietnam or whatever is kind of not the point. The fact is that for while anybody's digging it out of the ground and burning it, it is contributing to these emissions. And, and for the Pacific, this is, this is, this is a climate emergency. It's not a climate fantasy. It's a climate emergency that, that that is very much part of people's lived experience. Now, there's a, there's a question. Uh, Australia wants to host a UN climate summit uh, in a couple of years' time. Is it 2024, Tess? I think so, 25 maybe, yeah. yeah. But they, I think okay. it's COP29 there. And, and we want to do it as a Pacific family. Mm. Is, is that providing the Pacific with some leverage to say, well, come on, if you're going to open new coal and gas mines, you can't be serious about that. We, we, we won't stand alongside you for that. Look, I think, it, I think it opens up what could be quite a complex conversation. So on the one hand, it could give the Pacific leverage and I'm sure that that's what they would seek to use it for is to say, if you want us to stand next to you and, and say, yes, welcome to our Pacific family cop, then you need to be walking the talk. On the other hand, there is the the worry that, or, well, not the worry, but the possible concern that the Pacific may find themselves having to kind of hold their noses and smile, you know, smile through gritted teeth at things that that, that is, don't necessarily 
fit with their overall picture in order to, you know, show good faith with Australia as a member of the Pacific family. But I think whilst that's on the table, whilst that is a, a topic of conversation, it definitely does lead to the opportunity for Pacific leaders, mm. for Pacific activists to be set, to be really pushing for this is what we want, you know, let's make this, you know, if it's going to be a Pacific family cop, let's make it one that really counts. Mm. Let's look at PNG now. Seven people at least dead after a magnitude 7.6 earthquake hit on Monday and there are concerns that the death and damage toll could be much higher. Yeah, so I've ju- I was just checking on that before I spoke to you, Alan, and I'm now seeing that there are 10 confirmed dead. Um, the communications into that part of Papua New Guinea are still quite shaky. So there's still, you know, there's still the concern that the full implications of the injury and death toll, we don't yet know. We do know that there have been significant landslides. There's been significant buildings damage and damage to people's gardens and crops, which obviously has a really important food security aspect. Uh, Mission Aviation Fellowship has been ferrying injured people to larger centres such as Madang for medical treatment. So it's it's a really significant event um, in terms of the impact on that part of Papua New Guinea, which is quite remote. Speaking of PNG, it's one of the uh, uh, islands in the Pacific, the nations in the Pacific, where the, the British monarch is still the head of state. We've got Australia, New Zealand, yes. Papua New Guinea, Tuvalu, Solomon Islands. How has PNG responded to the death of the Queen? Well, I mean, the uh, the Prime Minister, relatively newly re- returned Prime Minister Marape, did make, um, you know, made, has made a couple of statements about this. As he said, you know, that his uh, the country awoke to the news that uh, the woman that they referred to as Mama Queen was no longer in that position; that she died, and and Charles King Charles III has now been proclaimed as head of state. Both Prime Minister Marape and the head of state. Uh, sorry, the Governor-General of Papua New Guinea will travel to London for the Queen's funeral and other Pacific leaders, are Pacific countries are also going to be represented at that event. So it's been quite, you know, I've been kind of keeping an eye on social media. Some amazing photos coming up of um, memories of when the Queen visited uh, either as part of her coronation tour or elsewhere in the region in the 1970s, um, people remembering stories that their parents told them about when the visit came. So obviously quite quite a significant um, point for people to use as a point of reflection in terms of themselves and their country's trajectory. Obviously, when the Queen, when Queen Elizabeth II became Queen, most of these, all of these countries weren't independent. A lot of them were part of the British Empire and have subsequently become independent countries since then. Hmm. Anthony Albanese has confirmed that uh, Solomon Islands, PNG, Tuvalu and Samoa will take up the offer uh, of RAF transport to the Queen's funeral service in London. Um, Will Prime Minister Albanese clear his throat and say, what do you think of Republic, folks, or will he just zip it? Um, I think based on what I've heard so far, that aspect of the conversation has not yet arisen in those countries where the Queen is still the head of state. It may do, but I think just in terms of um, Pacific protocols, generally it would be considered quite distasteful to have that conversation 
this close to the event and certainly, you know, there would be an expectation that that time of, um, you know, acknowledging the role of the Queen, marking um, her death and the funeral would be expected to lapse before any significant conversation about changing the constitutional status of the monarchy was entered into. Hmm, sounds familiar. Long mm. live the King, eh, Tess? Thank you. <laughs> You're welcome. <laughs> Dr Tess Newton-Cain, project leader at the Pacific Hub at Griffith University in Queensland and a regular on LNL. G'day, potties. As you know, we love a philosophical discussion here at LNL, but for a different take on the big ethical issues in modern life, try The Minefield with Waleed Ali and Scott Stevens. They may even mention Hannah Arendt. Find it on the ABC Listen app or wherever you get your podcasts. <laughs> 